This is The Green Desk on 95 BFM. This week I spoke to Dr. Daniel Hikuroa, a senior lecturer at Te Wānanga o Waipapa Māori Studies at the University of Auckland, who has just been appointed the UNESCO Commissioner for Culture for Aotearoa New Zealand. The United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organisation was founded in 1946, and New Zealand was the second country to ratify the constitution. Its mission is to build peace, eradicate poverty, and foster sustainable development and intercultural dialogue through education, sciences, and culture. Dan Hikuroa will replace the previous commissioner, Arapata Hakiwai, and hold the position for three years. I spoke to him about his expertise that he brings to the table, as well as his aspirations for the role. Oh, kia ora tātou, uh, hei mokapuna tēnei o Ngāti Manipoto me Waikato Tainui Hoki, uh, ko Dan Hikuroa Toko Ingoa. Kia ora, Dan. So, talking about this role as the UNESCO Commissioner for Culture, do you have kind of an idea of what the role entails? I'm learning as I go. I've been to one meeting so far in my appointment, and effectively I was appointed one week and then we had a meeting the next. But in kind of policy terms, our role is to advise the New Zealand government on its responsibilities with respect to being a UN partner as part of the educational, scientific and cultural component of it. So that's the kind of policy part. In practical terms, we have a suite of works, we have some strategic priorities, things that we're looking to achieve and the role of the commissioner is to both provide input onto you know, how we might plan to do things into the future and also think about how things that have happened in the past and from time to time you know, we might make personal contributions in that space as commissioners. And so UNESCO stands for the UN Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organisation. How do you feel like with your background with a PhD in geology and also your knowledge of Mātauranga Māori and being an educator as well as your role as a lecturer, how do you feel this kind of encapsulates all these three elements and how do you plan to use that? Yeah, I suppose when you put it that way, you know, on paper, you know, I fulfil many of the, <laughs> the aspirations of, of UNESCO, as you say. You know, I teach uh, at a tertiary education institution, have, have a, a PhD in the sciences, yet have a, a role nowadays uh, working in Te Wānanga Waipapa, Māori Studies Department, you know, where I teach tikanga, mātauranga. And my research interests, I think, probably reflect you know, the type of things that I will aim to do while I'm in UNESCO, and that's, where appropriate, weaving together mātauranga and science. And so recognising that each of those bodies of knowledge uh, valid in its own right, but when we bring them together and weave them together, bring those threads and strands together, we can create something that's unique, that draws from both of those bodies of knowledge and might even be stronger through doing so, yet each of them maintains its own validity and its own mana as part of this new thing we've woven together. And for me, that's what excites me about being a commissioner for UNESCO, the ability to weave the knowledge, is weave the science, weave the mātauranga together both myself, I'll do a little bit of it, but where I'm really excited is where I can try and get you know, the work of the UNESCO and it's in the communities and it's in those institutions, whether it be scientific or schools or universities, trying to create and facilitate opportunities for that weaving to happen. Because a big part of UNESCO's work that I was looking at was funding and partnerships with community groups. Absolutely. And one of my aspirations for fulfilling the role is to make the work of UNESCO more visible to Māori in particular, to whānau hapu and iwi. 
And one of the things about making it visible, of course, is that I also want to show how it's relevant. It's all very well saying, hey, hey, look, we're doing this thing and put out big flashing lights. But if it's not relevant to those folks, they kind of kind of not pay much attention. And I firmly believe that a lot of the strategic interest of UNESCO is of, of immense relevance for whānau apu and iwi. And conversely, I believe that Mataranga has a really strong role to play in the work that UNESCO does. And I should say, UNESCO will already recognise the role that Mataranga can play and are supporting and engaging in activities that demonstrably show that. So I'm not trying to propose anything that is new that's not been doing. I'm just looking to build upon that and amplify it. And yeah, and then doing it from a New Zealand perspective, we have a strong kind of lookout and leaning out to our cousins out in the Pacific, but also recognising that uh, New Zealand is seen to internationally, particularly in the United Nations community, as being one of those places in the world that can do things differently, sometimes by remembering that things have been done very well for a long time. So what drives me is not to take a Māori way of doing things to the world. What drives me is to enable Māori communities to realise their dreams and aspirations and help you know, solve the challenges they face and then show others around the world and they may gain some insight, they may gain some inspiration from the work we do here, but never to tell other people what they should be doing. Yeah, and I noticed when you first got the role, you told Tao, the Māori News Network, that you hadn't really heard that much about UNESCO's mahi here in Aotearoa. And I think a lot of people would agree with you there, you know, outside of maybe World Heritage Sites, I feel like it's not really known what UNESCO stands for. But I understand that UNESCO has a big focus on sustainable development and climate change. And I was wondering how you hope to amplify the role of Indigenous knowledge and what that will play in the future of our planet. I would look to build upon the types of things I've already been doing. And so a key part of what I see my role as a UNESCO commissioner is to just have that head on with the work that I do. So last year I gave a keynote at the New Zealand Sustainable Development Goals United Nations Conference and I was very clear that said, you know, when we think in global terms, we can think in terms of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. But when I think in the Aotearoa New Zealand context, I think kaitiakitanga. That's how I see it in my mind and so that's one example whereby the work we do here in New Zealand, we frame it how it makes sense to us here and then we can kind of share that with everyone else around the world. So what does that mean specifically? Not only do I see Mataranga as this amazing resource, uh, and resource is probably the wrong term, as a tāma, you know, in the active sense, something that's to be treasured, and that it is this amazing trove of observational, experiential, lived knowledge of our ecosystems and how they respond and how they react through seasons and how they respond and react to, you know, to sustainable harvesting, as well as being understood and framed within that worldview of being from the earth, not separate from the earth, you know, a part of nature, not apart from nature. And I think it's both that wealth of knowledge, of observation and practice that we can bring, coupled with that view that we are of the planet, not extra from it. And I think... You know, that thinking we can really take to the global because, you know, Indigenous peoples worldwide identify most strongly with the land or with the oceans that that, that they say is part of their identity. And I think the message for the planet is, well, we're actually all Indigenous to the planet. And so some of this thinking and some of the way we frame things is going to be important, just as much as the practical detail, say, that we find within our maramataka, which is that just this amazing system for... Uh, predicting when it's the right time to do things in the seasons, as well as a system for testing that we keep that knowledge current and as well as a predictive tool into the future, 
where we might actually start to see those things of climate change manifesting themselves and we might be able to make adjustments from that point forward. I realised maybe I might have made an assumption there by not getting you to break down right in the beginning what we meant when we talk about Mātauranga Māori, because I'm sure there are some who that might not be so clear for them. So Mātauranga is Māori knowledge, inclusive of culture, values and worldview. And then what I and others have, have demonstrably shown is that Mātauranga Māori is a base of knowledge, a trove of knowledge, that has been generated consistent with the scientific method, but completely independent from kind of the birth of, of science, as it were, from the Enlightenment. The thing with the scientific method, it's just a really good way for testing stuff to make sure it's accurate and precise. And so the critical thing is that, you know, much matauranga has been generated consistent with the scientific method, like the maramataka that I mentioned before. You know, the maramataka can be both accurate and can be both precise through time, and those are the hallmarks of any good information. And we know it is because it keeps predicting when things will happen, and they keep happening. So that's the part of, of Mataranga which kind of describes the what, and it sits within a worldview. And remembering, of course, that everyone has a worldview, but more often than not, the dominant worldview becomes so dominant it becomes invisible. And it's only when people realise that there is such a thing as a worldview and that you may have one or you will have one and others may have one and it might be different to yours. And it's not a contest about who's right and wrong. It's just recognising that, gosh, other people see and make sense of the world uh, in a way that which might be very similar to or might be quite different to the way I see it. And so that's one of the first steps that I'll be taking often when I explain Mātauranga and I explain these worldviews. And many of these four are where, you know, I may look to do some of the work as, as a Commissioner for Culture for UNESCO. And as you were saying before about neither one being superior or inferior to the other and them working sort of complementary to each other, do you get people saying they're fundamentally different? You know, is there a difference that's irreconcilable there or you think the two can be reconciled quite easily? There are some folks who are firmly of the belief that science is science. Most people, I think, though, and I'd say by far the majority of people whom I've had discussions with are quite open and are comfortable with, like, yeah, this makes sense. You know, we, we invoke things like Tanifa to explain, you know, what a river geomorphologist might describe as flood events or what a seismic geologist might describe as earthquakes or, or tsunamis. You know, so we're observing the same things occurring in the environment and we're recording them in a systematic and methodological way, but we invoke different senses of what we believe to be real and what we believe to be possible to explain what it is we see. And so, you know, the geologists will often look to plate tectonics or, you know, movements from the earth crust, whereas, you know, Māori will look to something like maybe a tanifa to explain what it is we see, but ultimately we see and describe and frame together in the same way the knowledge. It's just the codification of the knowledge that is different. I wanted to change tack a little bit and talk about the freshwater and marine side of things because I understand that's another area that your work focuses on a lot and I was wondering how you were planning to incorporate that into your new role. Yeah, and so I'll do that by mentioning in particular two of the five key strategies that you know, we're focused on at UNESCO at the moment. One of them is Indigenous Knowledge and Shaping a Sustainable Future, 2080 to 2021, and the other is Oceans for the Wellbeing of People and Planet. 2018 to 2021. And so what I'll be bringing specifically is an experience of the work I've done in rivers and waterways and how we look to reframe the way we describe the impact we're having on rivers away from an anthropocentric approach to putting the river at the centre. And of course we're inspired by this work by things such as the Te Uriwera Act 
you know, which was the first act to give nature a uh, legal personality. And then, of course, the one that is, is more widely known is the Te Awatupua Act, which gave the Whanganui River. And it describes, and I'll try and bring this from the, the legislation itself, it speaks about the catchment and all its biophysical and metaphysical elements as an indivisible whole. And so when you've got law like that to start with, you can really start to think, wow, that's incorporating an indigenous perspective, a Māori perspective, a Māori worldview to try and reflect it and make it work in, in law. And so what we're trying to do in the freshwater space and the waterway space, so how can we be inspired by that? How can we look to draw from cutting-edge technology and science? How can we look to draw from mātauranga and different ways of being and different ways of knowing the river and then completely reframe it instead of you know, reporting on the river and parts per million pollution this and too much drawing out of the river that to what's the river actually trying to say? How is it speaking to us? And of course it's not physically speaking, but that's the conceptual basis and we have many different ways for the voice to come forth. And so what we've turned our gaze to now is saying, well, you know, of course what happens on land will end up in the sea. You know, that natural connection between rivers and the ocean, between the land and the sea. Although it makes perfectly practical sense when you think about it, our legal systems are set up in ways in which it does not make practical sense. In fact, it's quite troublesome and it doesn't really accurately reflect the fact that things that happen on land, particularly that impact our rivers, will ultimately impact our oceans. And so we're looking to bring that same type of thinking, you know, what what would the ocean say to us if only it could speak? But one of the challenges is, you know, we have this order of things approach, you know, which is a really a product of the Enlightenment where we try and map and grid and, and by defining what's ours, you know, it means defining what's not yours. And one of the things that's happened as a result of that in the ocean space is that, you know, beyond our economic exclusive zone or whatever particular framing or line on a map you're going to use is this open ocean, the high seas. And, you know, the UN actually has a convention for that, the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea. There is a legal principle that underpins that convention, and it's, it's Māori nullius, which is the maritime equivalent to terra nullius, which is this idea that enabled colonial powers when encountering a new land are to claim it for them, even though people may have been present, but because that was deemed to be empty land or land without civilised people. And so a similar framing has been used in the ocean. You know, Māori nullius, it's, it's an empty ocean space. We would argue that's the complete antithesis of Māori and even Polynesian thinking. You know, it is the Te Moana Nui Akiwa. It's not the Pacific Ocean, it's Te Moana Nui Akiwa. It's the physical ocean. And, you know, for, for many Māori and, and, and many Polynesian people, she also has a personification that is Hine Moana. And so this idea that it's empty, I mean, it was seen as the marae of our old people because it was the access way between different peoples. It wasn't seen as a thing that separated us. It was seen as a thing that connected us. And I think the challenge there is we actually need to shift the thinking from an, from an order of things to an order of relations. And it's a term that uh, Damien Selman has put forth, which is very much just a whakapapa frame of the world. How do we relate to things as opposed to how things are different from, from us? And I think that's one of the key things that we need to start with first. And so I prefer to use voice of the river, voice of the ocean, as opposed to rights of the river and rights of the ocean, because rights requires this legislative framing and then an ability to enforce, whereas voice can include legislative but isn't encumbered by having to require it to start thinking that way and acting that way.
That was Dr. Daniel Hikuroa, the new UNESCO Commissioner for Culture for Aotearoa. That was the Green Desk on 95 BFM. Tihei Modi Order.